to look into the book of Ephesians and to discover the great treasure chest of the treasure trove of blessing that God has given us. We saw that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is something that is a present reality. We didn't get to go down all the roads that that could take us to. But some of the things I think of is that if you are in Christ today, if you know Christ as your Savior, then you are ready for heaven at any moment, at any instant in time. That's why you, and how you can go through life fearlessly. We live in a time that seems so dangerous in the news. There's so much violence all the time. And how do you go through life knowing that violence could come upon us at any time without warning, except that you know that you are ready, that you are prepared, your heart has been prepared, that God has equipped you for heaven already. So when it says you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that means you're ready for heaven if you're in Christ at any moment. Regardless of the uncertainties of life, you are prepared. Let's pray. Father, teach us this day. <clears throat> We're about to look into your word. We're about to hear from you. We know that as you spoke through the Apostle Paul, that you were not only speaking to this church at Ephesus and to those churches around, but down through the centuries, you have spoken to your people time and time again. And we look to you now, Lord, to teach us. Open up your word to us. Unfold it before our eyes. <clears throat> Give us a sense of awe and wonder at who you are and what you have done and what you are doing in our lives and what you have prepared for those who are in your son Jesus. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember going to a movie in my hometown as a, as a youngster. I don't remember how old I was. I was at that impressionable age, probably, and they did have movies then. Uh, some of you are thinking they had those then. Uh, I was probably, I want to say, 11, 12, something like that. It was one of those ages where, you know, things impact you a lot. And uh, it was in my hometown of Hicksville, New York. And uh, I know a lot of people say, want to say they're from Hicksville, but I really am. Uh, and uh, that's, that was my hometown. And there was a movie theater in town, and I went there with a buddy of mine, a couple of buddies, and I do not remember the movie we went to see, but I remember the preview for the next movie that they were promoting, the preview that they were showing. And thankfully in those days, I don't think it was like it is now where it's about 45 minutes of previews before you get to see the movie you actually went to go for, uh, but I do remember this one. It was a preview for the movie The Night of the Living Dead. It's one of those black and white horror classics, if there is such a thing. I mean, there were heads without bodies and bodies without heads. And the thing you remember most about, I remember most about the previews were these people walking down the street, like, robotically and staring, their eyes kind of just staring blankly ahead of them, and they're, they're called and controlled by some force outside of themselves. And uh, <clears throat> they were called zombies. It's the first time I heard of the concept of a zombie. And we find that the zombie, as the title of the movie said, was uh, the living dead. They were bodies. Yeah, with their eyes kind of lit up like that. And, and, and there were bodies that moved around, but they were controlled by something else, and, and their minds were not in control, and, and they were the living dead. The living dead. And this concept of, of, the, of the zombie and the living dead has kind of stuck with me, especially as I came to know the Bible, and I came to know Jesus Christ, and I come to passages like we're going to look at today, and we discover that Paul is talking about something, not really zombies, but he's talking about something that fits the description. Living dead. Look in chapter 2 of Ephesians. I'm going to read through this chapter now, and then we'll come back to this. But think about the concept of the living dead in this first couple sentences here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Walking dead. Following the course of this world. 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to stop there for now, and we'll continue on in a moment. Paul is really brutal here. He started out this letter talking about all the spiritual blessings that everyone who is in Christ has already. And we looked at that treasure, those treasures that we saw unfold. We looked at four of them last week. And now Paul comes back and he kind of runs the backstory. He said, well, where were you before you got all the blessing? Where were you before God unfolded all the heavenly blessings, the richness of heaven for you? Where were you before he ch- you knew that he chose you? Where were you? And Paul says in chapter 2, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. So as I, as I think about this, and I know I used this chain last week, but when I think about the living dead and those who are um, alive in their bodies, but spiritually they are dead, I think about this chain, that there's something, the soul is chained up. The soul is dead. The soul is uh, unable to respond to God. So I think about that, and I think about the freedom that we have through Jesus Christ. But Paul says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. By, By the way, when Paul wrote this in Greek, the whole passage I read is one big sentence. He just, he started running. Did you ever have that happen where you were running down a hill? And before you know it, you're running faster than you intended to run. And you keep running and running and running. It just kind of carries you along until you finally get to the bottom. And, and, and you didn't intend to run that fast. And it sounds like that's what happened to Paul. He started talking about this. And he started running with this. And he ran it all into one long sentence. And if he was in school, his teacher would have had the red pencil out saying, No, stop it there, stop it there. But this is Paul writing. And he said, You were dead in trespasses and sins. Everyone in this world is born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. There, there is no life in the soul that comes into this world. Now, you think, oh, we just celebrate the birth of a baby and, and you celebrate and you just see how precious this little one is and, and, and all the things that you want to communicate to that child and that child is, is soaking up all this information and growing just from the moment that you, that you meet him or her and, and you're just looking at him and, and, and looking at all the potential there and then you read this and you see Paul says here's the reality behind that beautiful child Behind that wonderful little life, there's a soul that is dead to God. You and I have all been there. We were all born dead in this world, spiritually dead. Now, now this concept of spiritual death uh, means that, that there's something missing. To be dead is to be unresponsive. That's the thing we don't like about being in the presence of a dead body. You can talk, but the body can't hear. You can poke them, but they can't respond. They don't have the ability to respond. Spiritually, it's that way with the soul that does not know Jesus. Dead. Unable to respond to God. Unable. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how much effort he puts into it, it's just not going to work because he's spiritually dead. So unless and until you are born again, you are spiritually dead. 
cut off from God, living in rebellion to God. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses and sins. It sounds like Paul is repeating himself here. He said, what's the difference? Trespasses has to do, we don't see a lot of this in the city, at least I don't notice this so much, but I know when you go out of the city, you see signs on property that says, no trespassing, right? And it's posted on the property line. You cross that line, and you're on someone else's property. You've trespassed. You don't belong there because it's not yours. You are dead, Paul says, in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually speaking, a trespass is when God says in his word, uh, this is sin, this is offensive to me, and he lays it out for us in what we call the commandments, and it says that this this is my desire for you as a human being, this is how you ought to live. When, you, when God lays that out and you cross that line and you say, I'm going to do it anyway, you've trespassed. You've crossed over the line of God's holiness. You've violated his command. You've trespassed. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, last week I, I told you about this debate that I heard, and I've not been able to follow up on it. I really wanted to get more information about it. But uh, it was a, a so-called debate between an atheist and a Christian, and both of them had the same view, and I'm thinking we didn't. one of them was not necessary, because supposedly they were saying that the debate was about, do we need the Ten Commandments anymore? And I'm thankful, at least for the interviewer, who was interviewing these two people afterwards, who said, well, who determines them? Who determines what the new morality would be? And that was a perfect question. That's exactly right. Who does? Do you decide that today, well, these are the things that are right and these are the things that are wrong, and then tomorrow you open the paper and say, oh, no, there's a new list. It's different. Everybody feels that this is the way it should be now and this is the way it should be. Uh, so who determines what's right and what's wrong? Who determines where the boundaries are? If the boundaries are always changing, how do you know how to live? There is nothing stable in this world because the boundaries are always changing. You can never hit the mark because it's always moving. It's a real dilemma. It's something that's really dangerously unleashed on us when we begin to go down that pathway of saying, saying that it's up to us to decide what's right. And it's time to throw away the old morality because it's outdated, it's old-fashioned. Well, God has his list, and it's God's list. And trespasses are violations of the commandments of God. Sins, however, Paul says, you are dead not only in trespasses, but also in sins. Sins are personal offenses against God. One violates his law, the trespass. Sin is in the face of God. It's a personal offense to God. Paul says you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. The evidence of spiritual death is the way life is lived. As death locks up the senses, so your soul is locked up, and you cannot relate to the world as God would have us do it. But there's something that unlocks it. There's something that unlocks the soul from spiritual death, and that's grace. That's grace. Uh, that's why I called this message Zombies and Grace. Because here we have the walking dead, and then something changes. The walking dead who are not able to respond to God, and then something changes, and the thing that changes is grace. The thing that changes and unlocks life is grace. Grace unlocks the senses and opens the soul and gives freedom and expansion to life. Jesus said that a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But he also said that I have come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. That you just enjoy life to the fullest. I remember as a new believer just riding my motorcycle through the streets of Chicago and thinking, wow, there's so much more here than I ever realized. It's, it's, it's like this world that was right there all the time and I couldn't see it. Suddenly, my mind was set free. I could see God at work. I could go back home to New York where I grew up. And I could visit the same places I went to when I was in high school. 
and I had this overwhelming sense that God was there. I would go to the beach that we used to hang out on, and God was there. I'd ride to the other side of Long Island, up in the hilly part in the stony North Shore, uh, and, and I would be there, and, and I was aware simply that God was there. And I had never known it before. I used to love riding through those places and going to those places, but I never knew that God was there. I went into New York City, Greenwich Village, hung out with the hippies, you know, and God was there. And I remember going in, and it was around Christmas time, uh, later that same year in which I came to know Christ, and there standing on the corner was a Salvation Army band. And I used to mock them. I mean, I used to make fun of them. These people playing their old songs, oh, what do they know? And I remember being arrested in my, my soul when I went by. I'm walking by them, and I, I was with my roommate from college, and I stopped. I said, we got, let's listen to these guys for a while. And the music that I thought was so uncool was touching me in my soul. It had never done that before. But God was moving. I'd been dead. Spiritually dead, but God had unlocked it and the abundance of life was coming. Eugene Peterson has his paraphrase of the New Testament, uh, of the whole Bible. And this part comes from 1 Peter 1.18. And in this passage, Peter's describing what life was like before you knew Christ, B.C., before Christ. And he says this, Your life is a journey you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It cost God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. <laughs> I love the way he, he paraphrased that. You were living in a dead-end, empty-headed way of life. What you thought was so cool was dead-end, empty-headed. It was going nowhere, and it had no reason behind it. Dead-end, empty-headed. And some of you can look back to those days before you knew Christ, and you can say, it's absolutely true. It's what I was. My life was a dead-end life. I was going nowhere spiritually. I, I thought I was cool and going places, but I was going nowhere. And everything that I thought was, was the, the way to do things was wrong. My whole perspective of life was wrong. Dead-end, empty-headed way of living. Paul says you used to walk in that. You used to walk in that dead-end, empty-headed way of living. Walking describes something that's progressive. One step, another step. You're not moving quickly. You're passing through an area. Did you ever know the difference, notice the difference between driving through an area and walking through the same area? You drive through and you're looking at stop signs, you're looking at traffic signals, and you're watching out for pedestrians, uh, but you don't notice the stuff on the side. But when you're walking through, you're looking at the houses, you're looking at decoration, you're looking at gardens, you're, you're hearing the birds that you miss when you're zipping through there. You're walking. You're walking. And Paul said, that's how you used to live. You used to walk through life one step at a time, and you weren't paying attention, though, when you were doing it, and you kept doing it. You were walking in sin. It's progressive and it's habitual by nature. One of the things that is most distressing to my soul in these days is, is I watch our culture change. And, and if you know me, you know that I love technology. I think it's great stuff. I love gadgets. I love the electronics. I love all the stuff that can happen from it. But one of the things that is so pervasive that distresses me as I think about it, that, that is like a plague upon our generation is while well, the internet has opened up a world of understanding and information and all kinds of resources just astounding what's out there and what's available it has also brought into our presence things that that are sick and corrupting to the soul uh, I'm thinking about pornography and, and especially the way I hear it spoken of in the in the uh, the people that are kind of the trendsetters of our day, you know, the, the sports stars and some of the media stars, and, and, and they talk about pornography that as if it's just, oh, it's just a thing. You know, it's like, it's like I stopped and picked up the newspaper and read a few pages of the paper and then I went on. It's not that. It's like drinking poison for your soul. It corrupts your understanding of the human race. It corrupts your soul. 
And it, it drives you backwards rather than forwards. It's, it's an enslaving thing. And so when Paul says the way in which you were walking, we live in a culture that increasingly says it's okay to walk in that kind of sin. It's not a big deal. The old folks thought it was bad, but we're cool. We can handle it. And I want to say to you, you're not cool. You can't handle it. It's robbing your soul. If you think you can just play with it a little bit. I mean, I even saw on, on cell phone applications, you can download pornography. So you'll be sitting watching your cell phone and looking at pornography. Come on. Don't fool yourself. That's the dead-end, empty-headed way of living that Paul is talking about. It just takes new forms. It looks differently for each generation. <clears throat> so, so these are the things. Pornography is, is the most rapidly growing moral cancer, I think, in our country. Um, worldwide, pornography is a $97 billion, $97 billion industry. $97 billion. It's very profitable to corrupt other people's souls. That's not to say what it does to the people who are involved in it. But those people who are at the other end of it, the recipients of it. We always hear about violence. Yesterday, today, news reports, two different incidents of violence in the national news again. There are always marches in the city against violence. I heard a woman on the south side today pleading to stop the violence. And they're right to do that. We have to be appalled by what kind of a people we are as a nation. But I think we shouldn't be surprised that as we walk in the dead-end, empty-headed way of thinking without God, that these things are going to happen. You see, we, we claim that we want freedom. We claim that we want to be free of God's oppression and God's commandments, the boundaries that chain us, we think. And yet we don't like what we get when we get that freedom. Because when we get the freedom, we get the violence. We get the corruption. We get those things that come when we rebel against God and when we're smarter than him. That's walking in sin. That's walking in spiritual death. It's living in rebellion against God. It's living in anger and rage. It's being controlled by, by a substance, but not being led and managed by God in your life. Paul says, we did this, we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air, we don't have to think hard to think about who he's talking about. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about Lucifer. He's talking about Satan here. He's talking about the, the prince who has usurped authority over earth and has put himself as a place of authority for time over earth. He's the prince of the power of the air. So who is behind all of this corruption in our culture that is multiplying and growing deeper? It's the prince of the power of the air. The power of the air in the, in the ancient mind was, it was the place where the spirit world was, where the spirit world lived. And so he was acknowledging that there is an invisible world, a spirit world, but within that world there are those who are living in rebellion against God, and those who are in rebellion against God hate what God loves. And their goal was to destroy human beings, because, because God created human beings lovingly. So, the rebel, the prince of the power of the air. And Paul says, we are led along by the passions of our flesh. We are led along by the passions of our flesh. Verse 3. We all lived in it. We all did it at one time. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we by nature children of wrath, even like the rest of mankind. The, the passions of the flesh... In the 70s, they had this phrase that went around that kind of gave you license to do anything. If it feels good, do it. Right? That was kind of one of the, the mottos of the day. Of course, if it feels good, you do it, and it destroys another person. Well, that's their problem, isn't it? That's somebody else's problem. But it made you feel good for a moment. That's what Paul is saying. You followed the passions of the flesh. You did what came naturally without thinking of any boundary without thinking that there are some areas where I ought never to go. If there are no areas in which you sense that you're having a spiritual battle, then you have no evidence that you're born again. If you never 
in your daily walk through our culture, whether it's on television or movies or printed media, whatever it might be, if you never ask the question, should I do this? If you never feel that this pulling in your soul, in your mind, saying, don't go there. Don't say that. Don't enter into that. Don't, don't hang with them. If you never feel that, then you're not in the spiritual battle. You're already defeated. You've already given up, and you're still following that dead-end, empty-headed way. And you're not born again. Because the first thing you notice when you come to Christ is that there's a battle. There is now a battle. I never used to have battles of conscience before I came to Christ. If I could get away with it, I did it. If I wanted to. I was free. No battle of conscience. But then... I came to Christ and there was this voice in me saying, Really? You want to go there? You want to do that? There was a battle going on and I never saw the battle before because I was already on the losing side. There was no battle. If you don't resist an impulse, if you don't have the voice saying, Should I resist? Then you're not in the battle at all. And Paul says, As a result of this, we were by nature children of wrath. It's not popular these days to talk about God's wrath. We like to talk about the God who loves us and he's so good for us. And, and we, we love that God. But we don't like to talk about God's wrath. That's kind of distasteful to us. You know, God would get angry. Wrath? I mean, that's strong anger. Yeah. That's the, maybe the message for the day is that we don't mess with God. And that when you... Shake your fist in God's face. It's not a safe thing to do. It's not safe. And so the wrath of God, we were children of wrath, even as others. We were just in a big company of everyone who's shaking their fist at God, thinking we're partying and getting away with it, not realizing that there is always a day of accounting with God. There always is. And so Paul said that we were children of wrath, even as others. I have to admit that there was always a sense, well, maybe if I get caught, I'll have to pay, but I'm not getting caught yet, so I'll keep on. You know, Jonathan Edwards had this strong message to the people in the, the Puritan people in the northeast of our country. He preached that famous sermon, maybe the most famous sermon ever preached in America, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that was his message. His message was, what are you going to do when you have to answer to God. What are you going to do one day? And if you ever read the accounts of how he delivered the sermon, Edwards was not a very demonstrative preacher. He didn't pound the pulpit. He didn't raise his voice. Evidently, he had it all written out in a book. He opened it up and he stood there and he read it. He would never make it great on television today. But when people heard him preach those words when he described us as being no more than a spider hanging on a spider web over the flames of hell. When he said that you're walking over the flames of hell and you're walking on rotting boards, the people listening that day began to sob. It said that some of the people were holding onto the poles that held up the building because they felt that all the things that were solid in their life, everything they were counting on, was being shaken by the fact that there is a day of accounting before a living God, children of wrath, even as others. We need to keep that in our minds. While we know God is a God of love, we also know that God does not wink at sin. He doesn't look the other way. And we like to think, well, we're naturally good. We like to think that we're truly uh, pretty good down inside. Paul says, actually, the truth is, the hard truth is, deep down inside, you're a rotten rebel against God. That's our nature. It's who we are. Psalm 51, the psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. It's passed on from generation to generation to generation. Now, it doesn't end there. Verse 4, a short phrase, two words, but possibly the most powerful two words in Scripture. We were on this course of condemnation, this course of deserving hell, deserving the wrath of God. 
but God. We were on the way down the hill. We were coasting towards hell, but God. But God reached out, but God acted, but God. Just two words. This is who we were. That's where we were going, but God. And then he says, but God being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. Paul keeps coming back to this when he wrote to the Romans in the Roman church. He said this again, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, but God being rich in mercy. It tells me and gives me great comfort. God receives sinners. He looks for sinners. He seeks them out. He has pursued sinners. He has never abandoned sinners. In fact, there are no perfect people allowed in God's heaven, only sinners. Because we are all children of wrath, even as others. But God, being rich in mercy. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. It's not giving them the judgment that they deserve. And so while we deserve the wrath of God, God has intervened and stopped what we deserve. And says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he interrupts himself here. By grace you have been saved. Just so you don't miss this, it's grace. It's grace. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Two different sides of the, ob of the same object. God, rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Paul wanted to balance out everything he said in chapter 1 about the great richness of the blessings of God. And he wanted us to understand it in such a way that we could get perspective. You, you know, I, I don't know much about art, but I know this, that if everything was just a white sheet, you wouldn't see anything on it. But if you put black lines on it, suddenly a picture comes out of it. It's the contrast that gives you the picture. Without the contrast, you don't see anything. And so here you have it. Paul said, now I want you to see it. You've got all these blessings. You've been blessed in every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And this is what it looks like. Compared to where you were. See the blackness of where you were. Of sin and death. See it. And it makes the blessing stand out. It makes the picture so much clearer. That's why Paul had to backtrack in chapter 2. And he had to restate it all. Now, there are no people, perfect people allowed in heaven. Only sinners saved by grace. Verse 6, And he raised us, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did this. It's done. Seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is a significant phrase to the Ephesians. The Ephesian people were very superstitious and they were idol worshippers and they were into the occult. And they were looking for spiritual power. They always wanted spiritual power. And Paul just kind of threw this in there for them. You're seated in the heavenly places. You've got spiritual power in Jesus. Now we, that kind of goes over our head, but for the Ephesians, they say, whoa, whoa, spiritual power. That's what we're looking for. So Paul said that for their sake and for our benefit as well. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the, show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's intention is that you are going to be the proof of his great love. That you, in heaven, will be the proof that God richly loves you and that he provided everything you need. You're his trophy. You're the evidence. You're the thing he's going to walk around saying, see him? See her? It's the proof. It's the proof that I have given what is necessary and done what is necessary to save a sinner. Verse 8 is so familiar to us. For by grace you have been saved. He repeats it again from verse 5. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is one of the first, two of the first verses that people learn as new believers. And if you haven't learned it yet, you better. You need to know it because you need to go back over and over and over again and you want to tell other people the truth that Paul is revealing here. Salvation is not your doing. Even the faith to believe is not your doing. It's all the gift of God. It's all the gift of God. Everything. It's amazing. There will be no boasting in heaven. Paul says this to the Corinthians as well. He says there is no boasting. There's no place to boast. So you, you are ordinary people. And some of you, a few of you are noble, but most of you weren't. And, but God didn't choose you because of any great characteristic in you. He chose you because he loved you, because he chose you, because that's what he wanted to do. And you are his great treasure. You are the thing that he, his workmanship, Paul says here. You're his masterpiece. Come from the word from which we get our word poem. Masterpiece. God will not allow you to earn salvation. It's his gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot work hard enough or long enough or do enough, learn enough. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. It's God's gift. So if you're here today and you're trying to earn, you're trying to be good enough for God, give it up. You can't be good enough for God. Because God has done for you everything that is necessary. I remember going to Westminster Abbey in London. It was like a dream come true. You walk around this place that, I don't know, I think it's 900 years old. It's a lot older than Chicago. And it's, you walk through this place, and in this massive cathedral are the names of everybody you heard of in all your classes growing up. They're buried there. William Wordsworth, John Keats, Shelley, um, Lord Byron, all these famous authors, explorers. Uh, one of my favorite things is in, in one of the one of the graves on the floor. They came across the, across the grave of David Livingston, a missionary. The man who opened up Africa. He was an explorer and a missionary. He opened up the study of Africa to, to the world, basically. And he did it by going in and, and giving his life and living his days among the people and teaching them about the Word of God, teaching them about Jesus Christ. We were told that the body of David Livingston is in the floor of Westminster Abbey, but his heart's not there. The people of Africa, when they found his body in his tent where he died, uh, they kept his heart in Africa. They loved him so much because of what he had given to them through the word of God, through opening the word of God to them, that they could not let all of him be taken back. And so the body of David Livingston is in the floor of Westminster Abbey, but his heart's in Africa. It's because he gave his heart and his life for the people of Africa to give them the gospel. It's an amazing thing, and I think I probably could spend <clears throat> weeks in a place like Westminster Abbey walking around, because I kept saying to Jan, I, I can't believe we're here. <laughs> I can't believe it. We're here. And we got read about this place, and we're here. Now, if I get that excited over an old building here on earth, what's heaven going to be like? It's going to take you all of eternity to begin to explain to anybody and everybody that you see how astounding it is that you're here. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe it. This is it. This is the place. And it's going to take you all of eternity to begin to understand the depths of God's love in sending His Son to die for you so that you could go to that place, so that you could live in heaven. God has arranged, verse 10 says, that you have good works to do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has something for you to do. If you are in Christ today and you are sitting here saying to yourself, well, come on, preacher, I dare you to teach me something. Come on, you know, like the guys that sat next to me in German class in high school. Come on, I dare you to teach me. 
If you're here daring God to teach you, you're wasting your time. God has told you he's got something for you to do. Get out and about it. He made you a certain way. He put you together in your mother's womb. He gifted you in a certain way. And when you came to know him, he unleashed all of those things that have been locked up inside of you so that you can do something that lasts for eternity. Get about it. Sometimes we, we, we get this, this thing in the Christian culture where we think it's our goal in life, the whole goal of, of Christianity is to get more and more thrills. Just come on, thrill me more. Come on, give me more miracles. Give me more of this. Give me some of that. And Paul says very plainly, the reason you are saved is so that you can do good works. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. Get about it. Get about the work. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, get about it. Don't sit there daring God to thrill you again. You want to get the thrill of your life? Begin to live for Jesus. Begin to tell people about him. Begin to serve others in ways and places that maybe no one else wants to go. Do it. You're going to change your whole perspective. God will thrill you, but he's not going to do it through some kind of dramatic demonstration. He's going to do it by, by just giving you something to walk in that, that brings a thrill to everyone else. Well, now, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And Paul is bringing up a topic here. To the Jews, everyone who was not a Jew was uncircumcised. They were looked down on. The Jews said, this is the way God has given us this sign of his blessing. This is the sign of his calling to us. And to know about God, you have to come through Israel. And so there was this wall that Paul was talking about between Israel and everybody else. Israel saw that they were the way to God. They had the secrets. They had the knowledge. They had what God had given them. And everyone had to come through Israel to get to God. Paul is saying something new happened. Something new happened when someone came to Christ, comes to Christ. You were at one time Gentiles. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. That you were outside of the realm of where salvation is found. And he sums it up, which is just the way that describes my life before I came to know Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. I had excitements, I had adventures, but I had no hope. I was without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far away. You were separate from Israel, but now you've been brought near. You were away from God, but he brought you near. The thing I was thinking, I was trying to think, what would, it, what would illustrate um, these two coming together, two things coming together and being made one? Because that's what Paul is saying here. Um, now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made both one, both Jew and Gentile one. And, and I can think of, and this is a, a small lesson from high school that I remember a science teacher saying one time, uh, that salt, common table salt, is made up of two elements, sodium and chlorine. Both of them are deadly. If you were to eat sodium, uh, ingest sodium or chlorine on its own, you'd die. They're deadly. But chemically, they bond together, and we have sodium chloride, common salt. It's necessary for life. The two become one. God arranged it that way. The two things that were totally separate are, and on their own are deadly. Together, they're life-giving. Your body requires sodium chloride to live. When you get dehydrated and they put you in the hospital, they put an IV in your arm and they give you salt water. Sodium chloride, basically. You need it to live. He made two things separate into one and changed the nature of everything that came about as a result of it. The two became one in Christ Jesus. God made dramatic changes in you the moment you were saved. And look down 
a little further. I want to go down to verse 19. Well, let, let me read down to there. For himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It was through the cross that everything comes together in God's plan. For the Jew, everything was the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Jesus came, he was the Messiah, and now as the Jew looks to the cross, he is fulfilled. Everything is fulfilled. To the Gentile outside, away from the ways of God, the cross is the means to understand everything that the Jew knew and had, but now to enter into it. And the two became one through the cross. It's the place where those things come together, those opposites came together. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Reconcile us to God. The war is over. At Christmas we sing, Hark the Herald Angels sing, one of the phrases in there, God and sinners reconciled. The great amazing thing. Rebels against God, brought together with God. Peace is made. Praise God. Let's sing and let's praise him. Well, now there are four things I want to wrap this up with. That he might reconcile us, uh, verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. To the Jew uh, who is near, and to the Gentile who is far off, brought us all together, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Four dramatic changes that we find beginning in verse 19 through the end of that chapter. The moment you are saved, you are saved from hell. When did it occur? The moment that you heard the word of truth. And we're talking about the blessing of God. I want to go back to chapter 1 for just a moment here. Um, in verse 13, you, in him also, in Christ also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You were saved when you heard the message and God activated faith in your heart and you responded. You trusted in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. You were saved at that moment, right then at that moment, not some later time, right then. That's the thing to hold on to, friends, that a person becomes a believer at the moment they trust in Christ. I think about in the book of Acts, and there's this Ethiopian uh, treasurer walking, riding along in his chariot, and God brings Philip, the evangelist, alongside to meet him, and he says, hey, what are you reading there? He says, I'm reading this book Isaiah, and I don't understand what it's talking about. Who's this one who suffers? And Philip gets up in the chariot, rides along with him, explains it all, and right there, the Ethiopian says, well, here's water, can I be baptized? And Philip baptizes him. No great length of separation. He heard the word, he responded in faith, and he believed, and he was baptized in, in water baptism, in the evidence that something had happened. It's instantaneous. You're saved like that. You're saved the moment you believe, when you hear the word of truth. So you are saved. You become a dwelling place of God. And this is also in chapter 1. Uh, the Holy Spirit, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He came to live inside of you at the moment that you believed. If anyone tells you at any time that you can be saved, but you don't have the Holy Spirit until a certain following blessing comes, you need to look them in the eye and say, we have a problem here with what the Word of God says. This sounds like nice theology, nice human perspective, but it's not what the Word of God says. In Romans chapter 8, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then Paul says very distinctly, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You either are saved or you're not. 
You either have the Spirit of God or you don't have the Spirit of God. You don't get saved and then wait for a second blessing. There is no second blessing. It's all at once. God is able to do it and He does it all at the same time. You trust in Him. You are sealed in Him. You are indwelled by the Spirit of God. It all happens instantaneously. It's the power of God at work. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Him. They might have churchy words, but they're simply not believers. And that's the truth. That's what God's Word says here. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. Paul also says this has something to do with the way we live. If you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you, he said, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He lives inside of you. Um, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Again, we find that you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. You were sealed. It's done. God put his mark on you. You were also baptized at the same time by the Holy Spirit. The word baptism means to be immersed under. So the Spirit of God comes to live inside of a believer, and the Spirit of God engulfs a believer. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. These are all things that happen when a person trusts in Christ. You need to develop your theology and your view of the world and, and God's work from the Bible. And Paul's conclusion is you were once far from Israel, you were far from God, but now you are a citizen with full rights. There's nothing to be denied you. God has provided all, it all for you. Once you were a zombie, but now you're fully alive. You were brought back from the dead. Now, if you know those things, and Paul is going to get to that in just a little while, when we get to the uh, end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul begins to say, okay, these things are true. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're saved. Now, all of these things are true. What does that mean? What should happen? What's the evidence of it in the way you live? These things are all yet coming. It's my prayer that as we look in the book of Ephesians, as we build on this foundation that Paul is laying out for us, suddenly the way you live your life as a believer changes. You understand everything differently. Well, let's stand and, and close us, our service as we sing closing song. And as, as we do this today, um, keep in mind the blessing, the rich blessing of God. We're singing a song about chains set free. This is what God has done in you and through you and for you.